is going to be revive us again and this is an oldie but such a goodie and I think you know as we're thinking about transitioning into potentially another time of of just being alone I think it's important that it'd be really easy to sit back and to say this is a sad time but our reality is is that this is an incredible time and we're giving 
um, a whole new opportunity to see Christ in a way that we haven't had to depend on him before. Hi, sweetie. And I think we need to just say the words of revive us. We want the Lord to renew our spirits, to bring that breath of life back into us. And so this Revive Us song um, is just something that I felt had to be sung um, as we move through the rest of the fall here. We praise Thee, O God, for the Son of Thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. We praise thee, O God, for the spirit of light who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who was born all our sins and has cleansed every stain. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May be soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. How great the chasm that lay between us. spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The Christ, my 
such boundless grace, the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven, the King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ,
may be seated. Morning, everyone. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just uh, come before you this morning um, in all of you and um, and looking to worship you. Um, just uh, reveal yourself this morning as we uh, meditate on your nature. And um, I just ask that that uh, that we would be open to to receiving what you have for us today. In your name, amen. Um, so uh, we're continuing our study of the names of Jesus uh, this week. Um, and as we've gone through this, uh, hopefully this has challenged each of you in, in ways to, um, to broaden your understanding of who Jesus is. And um, one of the challenges of of doing this is that each week we focus on a different aspect of Jesus, and um, and part part of the reason that you do that we are doing it this way is because Jesus is so complex um, and so beyond our understanding that um, that even just focusing on one aspect uh, each week sometimes makes it difficult because um, you know when you focus on one aspect. Um, the truth is that that he is more than that one aspect, even. So, um, so as I've been meditating on on this concept of the Son of God, Son of Man, um, over the past several weeks, uh, it's just um, there's so much there's so much that we could talk about that um, hopefully. Hopefully I can weave this together into um, some sort of narrative that makes sense this morning. So, um, so why don't we? Uh, so why don't we start? Um, so, just this concept of Son of God and Son of Man is um, is kind of it's an interesting concept because we all know that uh, in one sense, yes, Jesus is God's Son. That's how He described Himself. But in another sense, it's not the same as what, as what, you know, how Luke would be my son. It's not, he wasn't, he wasn't born in that way. It wasn't that God the Father existed before Jesus existed, and then he created Jesus in some way. But, but, they, but God and Jesus, they, they chose to reveal themselves using this relationship in a way that would make it sort of clear to us what their, what their differing roles were. Um, and so, um, and so in, in one sense, it's, it's an analogy, but it's an incomplete analogy. Um, and so, but, but they chose it so that we could maybe understand a little bit deeper what the, um, what the, what their roles were. Uh, so before we start talking about the role of the son, I want to think a little bit about the role of the father. And um, and as, as we go through this, I think what what I um, one thing that I came to understand is that the the son is really uh, is really the hero of the story. 
And it says in Revelation that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think in, in one sense that happens even now um, without people even realizing it. And so, you know, every time you watch, watch a Hollywood movie where you see a hero, what they're really doing is they're trying to portray what, what their concept of Jesus is, whether or not they actually, you know, understand that that's what they're doing. Um, and so, uh, so let, let's, talk about, let's talk about the role of the Father, and then, um, and then we'll, see, we'll see how uh, Jesus understood his, his role as the Son or as the hero. So, um, so as you think about a human father, uh, what are some of the things that come to mind? Um, I think... You know, obviously, a father is someone who is in authority, um, and uh, he, in, in a certain sense, he's a standard that you measure yourself against. And um, I probably didn't understand this fully until I became a father, but I really realized that my children are often uh, trying to emulate me in ways that, um, you know, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But, but. Whether or not I intend it, I, I have become, in just being their father, the standard that they, uh, that they measure themselves against. Um, also, as a father, uh, you, you do have the, the role of being a judge to some, some extent. You have to determine what, what uh, behavior patterns and behavior, behaviors that your children express that are good and which are bad. And, um, you know, as I've become a father, I realize that it's, it's often not, um, or I try not to be judgmental in a, in a crushing way, but, but still, it, you have to exercise judgment in a way that will promote those behaviors and patterns of behavior that, that will encourage your children to become the best that they can be. Um, and there's also there's also an aspect of, of judgment that is also merciful. Um, that that's definitely an aspect of God the Father is that um, is that He is a judge, but He also chooses to show mercy. Um, and a good father is also someone who uh, who exercises discipline and and teaches uh, their children in how to. Um, how, how to act and how to grow uh, and grow in their interactions with each other. So, um, also, on the other hand, there can, be there can be a lot of expressions of the bad aspects of father, where either the authority aspect has become too tyrannical, or on the other hand, has become absent and, and has become weak. Um, and all, often our impression of God in the Old Testament is that he, uh, is, he often seems tyrannical to us uh, in the way that he's portrayed in the Old Testament. Um, one, one thing that I've struggled with over the years is why does the God of the Old Testament seem so different than the God of the New Testament? Um, and what what i've come to realize or or maybe one explanation for that is that in romans 13 paul says that 
we see as through a mirror dimly, uh, but then we shall see face to face. And what, what I've come to realize is that a lot of times our view of God is as through a mirror, and it actually ends up reflecting us more than it reflects God a lot of the time. And so how we portray God often says more about us than it does about, about God, unfortunately. And I think that was what was happening in the Old Testament, is that the people had, a, had not a full understanding of God. He hadn't, he hadn't completely revealed himself. Even Jesus, to the disciples, he, he said in, uh, in John 16 that he had much more that he wanted to tell them, but they weren't ready for it yet. And so, um, so I think in the process of revealing himself to, to us as humans, that God wasn't able to fully express himself as clearly as, as he wanted to um, until, we, until we absorbed a little piece of him, and then we were able for, to absorb a little bit more. And, um, and so I think this is why in the Old Testament it often seems like God, God the Father is tyrannical. Um, another aspect of fathers is that as, as you become a father, you become, um, in a sense, out of touch with, with the changing surrounding around you. Um, I, I remember as a, uh, as probably a teenager, we got, we got a computer and I used to um, kind of ridicule my dad as he would, he was taking Mavis Beacon teaches typing to try to learn how to, how to type on a computer. Now he's a lot better than that. But, um, but it, it kind of struck me as funny when I was, when I was little because it, it seemed like he was out of touch with the reality. Um, and, you know, now that I've become a father, um, I realize that, you know, that, that's, that is, rapidly becoming me in some ways. So, um, so that even though, even though God himself is not, is not blind and out of touch, our understanding of God uh, can become blind and, and out of touch if we don't update it. And so um, the, one of the jobs of the father is to pass along the culture that, that we have accumulated over the years to the next generation so that it doesn't, it doesn't become lost. And there's a lot of wisdom in that tradition and a lot, a lot of things that we don't always understand. Sometimes we, we act things out without fully understanding the reason why. Um, and uh, and the, pro the problem can be that that tradition, while it has good parts of it also may need updating from time to time. And if, if we become too, um, too focused on the tradition, then, then we will lose touch with what, with what reality is. When we create the culture that we're trying to, that, that we pass on to our children, what we're trying to do is we're trying to point them uh, at least if we're good good fathers, we're trying to point them to to God and and we're trying to create a structure for our children, for our church, for anything that we're we're trying to perpetuate the the structure on. We're trying to to make a structure that promotes human flourishing that 
um, that allows each person that comes, you know, if we're talking about our church, we're talk- we pass along a tradition, and we're hoping that that tradition uh, makes, makes an atmosphere in which each person who comes into the church can experience God and, and, and grow to their maximum potential and, and serve God in, in the way that they are most able to. Um, a, a good structure uh, for human flourishing is one that, um, that actually promotes sacrifice. It is only through sacrifice that we're able to, to grow. Uh, you, have, you always have to sacrifice that which is less important to achieve that which is more important. Um, and so a, a, good, a good structure, a good culture, will allow that the sacrifices that are made, the, the rewards for those will be proportional to the sacrifice that's made. And I think we see that even back in... Uh, in the story of Cain and Abel, where Abel made an appropriate sacrifice and received, you know, his his sacrifice was accepted. Um, and we see Cain, he made a sacrifice that was of less quality, although it's, it's, it's a little ambiguous as to what exactly that quality was that was less than Abel's. But, um, but he didn't receive the same reward that Abel did. And uh, and a good culture will allow those those individuals that have made a good sacrifice to um, to receive the reward from that sacrifice uh, if it's of a, of a, of appropriate quality. Uh, but also a good a good culture or a good structure will allow anyone within that who who is a part of that culture to 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 be able to make a, a sacrifice and receive the rewards of it. It, it, it a good structure will not um, will not limit who is able to participate in the structure. Uh, and if if we see either one of those principles being violated, then then that begins to make us question whether the the culture is fair or the the structure is fair. Um, what happens over time, though, is that we begin, even though we set up the structure and the culture to promote human flourishing and to promote the ability to follow God, to, to worship him, the, the structure eventually becomes our focus in and of itself. And, and we begin, instead of focusing on God and pointing towards God and orienting ourselves towards God, we become focused on just preserving the culture, just preserving the tradition. Um, and we begin to worship the structure that we have created rather than God. And it becomes an idol to us in a way. We have created a, a graven image that looks sort of like God when it begins. And then over time, it begins to look less and less like God and more and more like ourselves. Um, and if we don't update that, with new understanding of what God is and who he is and what he's trying to do, then that graven image of the tradition that we have established, even though it was initially established for a good reason, uh, becomes to, begins to look less and less like God. 
we see this in the book of Judges. Um, we see that, uh, we see what happens when people lose their relationship with God the Father and begin to substitute their own understanding of what it means to be a father um, in, into their, the orienting uh, mode of their culture. And what we see in Judges is we see this descent um, into cycles of tyranny and chaos. So um, as we said before, these, these can both be aspects of where uh, the, the concept of the father goes off. So if we have a, an unhealthy concept of the father, then we can overemphasize authority and become too tyrannical, or we can underemphasize that authority and become chaotic. And that's what we see with, with the cycle of the judges. And at, at the end of the time of the judges, the people are tired of this unending cycle of tyranny and chaos. Um, and so they attempt to fix this with the kings. And they think that by establishing a kingdom, they'll be able to overcome and, and break out of this cycle because they'll, they'll always have a natural successor to the previous king. When the king dies, they think that they won't lose that authority that has been established. They'll be able to, to continue that with his son. Um, the, the, the problem, obviously, is that while this designates a person, this doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that the king's son is going to be an appropriate authority. And so the sons did not always follow their fathers and did not always exercise the authority correctly. And so, um, so even in the time of the kings, you see this unending cycle of tyranny followed by chaos followed by tyranny, followed by chaos. It's like it, the, the times of tyranny are, the, the structure becomes too rigid. And once it becomes too rigid, it's very easy to topple over. Uh, you know, you can see in the, in the judges, it, it, sometimes it just takes the slaying of one person and the whole, and that, that's enough to just end the tyranny. Um, on the other hand, uh, once it goes down into chaos, the people cry out and they demand more authority. They demand a king. Um, and so chaos begets uh, uh, tyranny and tyranny then begets chaos. Um, and so all, all during this time of the kings and the judges, uh, the culture became increasingly separated from God. So, uh, so like I said before, initially they started out with this vision of what it meant to follow God, their laws out, you know, outlined by Moses, uh, giving them guidance on how to make sure that, um, that competence was rewarded, but that anyone in society would not be excluded from, from society just because of their position. Um, and as this got promulgated through the ages, it eventually got to the point where there was very little resemblance between the Israelite culture and God. And it got even to the point where they were unable to recognize God uh, when, when he came in the flesh. Um, and eventually, it got to the point where uh, tyranny was preferred to chaos. And they realized that you know, if we can just put up with tyranny, at least then we'll we'll avoid um, we'll avoid the chaos uh, aspect. 
And so at the time when Christ came, what he experienced was a culture that was characterized by a rigid structure, where the main, the main goal of the time when Christ came was preserving that structure, preserving that culture. And the rich got richer, the poor got poorer, and those that were in power were threatened by those who were underneath them. And at that point, it seemed like all was lost, because it seemed like the culture had no longer become associated with God at all. Um, and, you know, God, as, as the perfect standard, God the Father, um, it became, I think it became to the point where the people weren't seeking him, and he couldn't, he couldn't intervene in and of himself because he was, that, that aspect of God, the, the thought of God the Father was, was too holy, and so he couldn't intervene into that degenerate culture without completely destroying everyone who was part of that culture. So what, what was God to do? And what, what he did at that point was send Jesus as the hero of the story, as the son, um, in order to reach the people who, who were so lost. And the, the son, as opposed to the father, the, the son, um, while, while the father is the perfect standard for which to measure yourself against, the son is relatable. The, the son you can relate to. And he resides in that space between chaos and order. He is not, he's not completely orderly, but he, can, he knows when to... When he, it, Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, he said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he knew that there were some aspects of order that were important but he also realized that there was a time for for judge for for mercy and for challenging the tradition of the day um he did perfectly reflect the father uh jesus being his son he was he was the emissary from the father but he, he reflected the Father in a way that was able to relate to humans. So in Romans 8, uh, Paul says that the law, what the law was powerless to do, Christ did by coming in the flesh. And so because Christ came in the flesh, he was actually able to, to, relate, to relate to us in a way that God the Father was not. Um, and so... So the, the the purpose of the son, and and this is this is probably the part uh, that it sort of took me the most time to sort of think about and, and try to figure out. But um, but in all in all adventure stories, the hero is the one who um, he understands the laws. But he, 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 in a sense, knows when to break them. He knows when to walk through the field and pick the grain and eat it on the Sabbath. He knows when to heal on the Sabbath. 
he doesn't break the law just for the sake of breaking the law, but he breaks the law in order to bring about the greater good. Um, and that's a very that's a difficult concept for us law-abiding people to understand. But there there is an aspect in which the the son uh, know, knows when to go against tradition in order to to bring about um, to bring about the greater good. And uh, and also the the purpose of the hero is always to slay the dragon and the dragon is is always guarding something of value to the to the hero either a great treasure or or a virgin um depending on the story but there's always something of value to the to the hero that is guarded by the dragon and so uh and so G jesus also being the the ultimate hero of the story also slayed the dragon of sin to rescue, to rescue the princess, to rescue the church. Um, and another, and to do that, he ha he had to abolish the tyrannical, idolatrous system of the day. Um, the the way that the the hero always slays the dragon, interestingly, um, and you can see this in numerous numerous adventure stories is that it's it's always through a sacrificial death um and jesus realized this even uh before his death uh in matthew 16 uh just after the revelation uh of, of jesus being the son of god by peter jesus then uh begins to talk about his death and uh, Peter, of course, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Um, and this sacrificial death that we see uh, does several things. Um, so, First of all, as we said, the sacrificial death is necessary to slay the dragon. It's also necessary, in a sense, to save the Father. Um, and it's not that God the Father needed saving, but his, his image, it, that as it was expressed in the world, was so distorted that when, when Jesus died, he also... Um, provided that atonement for sin that allowed us to understand God the Father again. Um, and he, he was the royal priest, as it says in Hebrews, that, that allowed God to relate to humans again as well. And, um, you know, if you're watching, watching adventure movies or even, you know, like I do a lot with my kids, watch old Disney movies, you, you see this a lot. You see this... Um, you know, in Pinocchio, where, where the father is swallowed up by the whale, and Pinocchio, the hero, the Christ figure in the story, has to go down and rescue his father and, and, and restore the true tradition, the true culture. Um, and, uh, you know, in that story, 
Pinocchio ends up dying. He ends up being killed by the whale and then is reborn. So um, you, you can see this in, in so many stories that, uh, you know, it's just amazing the way that, uh, that, that people that don't even intend to can, uh, can, can give glory to God without, uh, without even knowing it. Uh, so, so as I was saying, the death of the son brings about the restoration of that relationship between God the Father and, and humans. And it also releases and awakens the, the princess from the, that is the church, from the thrall of the dragon. Um, but an, another truth that always happens is that once, once the son has sacrificed himself in this way, then this results in the resurrection of the son. And, um, and in, in uh, sorry, Hebrews 7, we see this, that, uh, that, that Jesus, uh, it's in, the author of Hebrews is comparing him to Melchizedek and, and saying that he is a priest. Um, and he also says that he, um, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the prince of God most high. He met with Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without mother or father, without genealogy, without beginning or end of days, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Uh, I'll skip, skip down a little bit. Um, without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In one case, the tenth is collected by the people who died, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people established, who established that priesthood, why then was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and, of, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in that regard, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become the priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus, by, by living his life and by being willing to sacrifice himself uh, to, to rescue the princess, the, the church, and to, also, um, and to also restore the relationship of God to to his creation, that, that was what characterized an indestructible life. And so, so that resulted in the resurrection of the son. So now we are living in this 
era where we are have the foretaste between of the union between Christ and the church. Um, ultimately, this will be consummated in heaven. However, um, during this time, uh, we we do have a relationship with God the Father, and so so we can uphold that standard of of the Father being the, the standard, the judge, and the and the the teacher. But we can also be flexible enough now that we have a relationship with the Son that we can also adapt to, to changing circumstances. But we still had the, the question, because there, there were heroes in the Old Testament times. Each of the judges was a hero in a sense, where he, they destroyed tyranny. Um, but it, it was not something that lasted. And so, um, so we still had the problem of how do we keep this this understanding going. And one, you know, one, one solution to that problem would have been to have Jesus stay here in the flesh forever, you know, after his resurrection. Um, but the problem with that is that he was still here in the flesh. He still would have had, there would have been a rigid structure that, that, constructed itself around around Jesus, where not everyone would have the same access to him. I mean, he's only one person. So, you know, obviously, to get to Jesus, you would have had to go through this whole, this whole structure of other people that were, you know, in the way, in a sense. And so, the solution that, that God came up with was to have Jesus leave us to ascend but then to send the Spirit in his place. And uh, in John 16, Jesus says, unless I go, I can't, I can't send the Spirit to you. And so, um, and so that, that is the way that God was able to solve that problem of the continual descent into tyranny and, and chaos, was that he sent the Spirit who continually updates and maintains that link between God and humans. Um. And so within each of us, we have, if, if we're believers and have accepted it, we have, we have the spirit who lives within us. And, this, and so within each of us, we have the aspect of God the Father, who is the, who is the standard um, for which we measure ourselves against. And we also have the Son who breaks down the, um, who breaks down the barriers and we also have the Spirit that continually updates and um, and teaches us uh, how we should how we should understand God and how we should uh, follow Him more closely. So, um, so in conclusion, um, so what we have seen is that society, in and of itself, even though it started with good intentions and and wants to promote human flourishing, it cannot keep the proper role of the father in mind as, as the, in in his proper level of authority and either tends towards too much authority and tyranny or tends to too little authority and chaos and um, and ends up cycling between those two. The role of the son is to uphold the proper role of the father as a standard and a wise judge and teacher. And we, see, we saw that in Christ as he perfectly reflected God the father.
But upholding the proper role of the father is costly to the son, and it requires sacrifice. But also restoring that connection to the father also restores life to the son. And so through sacrifice, the son is also reborn. Our role as the church, as the, you know, the princess who was rescued in this scenario, is to partner together with the son in bringing forth new lines of thinking that are consistent with the standard of the father, but also flexible to respond to shifts in the landscape. And the way that we do this is by welcoming the spirit who continually works to interpret the will of the father to us so we can avoid those twin traps of chaos and tyranny. Um, so I'm not sure if any of that really made sense, but that's sort of what I've been meditating on the last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, certainly it's, it's a conversation. It's one that, you know, I, I certainly haven't completely figured out. So, um, so I'm interested in, uh, continuing the conversation in, uh, in the Sunday school time. Um, as, as we close, uh, I, I think the children's ministry is now moved to the old fellowship hall. Um, and that will begin at 1045, um, in the old fellowship hall. And we will have a, um, adult Sunday school class also beginning at 1045. And both of those will run to 1115. Um, so, uh, so it looks like we'll have about 15 minutes or so. Uh, so you can use that time to fellowship um, and uh, and meet up, catch up with people around. So, um, all right, let's let's pray. Dear Lord, I just uh, come before you this morning um, again in awe of your wonder and your majesty and the way you have created the earth and the way that you have imprinted yourself on each one of us so that even without trying to we bring we bring glory to your name but uh lord just open us to uh hear from your spirit that we would be uh better vessels of you better able to uh to speak your word to those around us to to show your love to those around us um Help us not to become distracted by uh, things that seem good, um, but are ultimately a distraction from you. Um, we just lift up uh, this message to you today in this service. In your name, amen. As we close out our time together, um, just wanted to select a song that kind of brought us back to our roots. And so this morning, we're going to close the service by singing Jesus Loves Me. Be
Thank you.